This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 25th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. It's easy to take for granted the incredible variety of foods available to us because of globalization, most particularly fresh produce that, because growing seasons are different in different hemispheres, that food has to come from another side of the world. Cato's Scott Linscombe details how globalization broadens our palates. Scott, before we started recording, you and I were discussing our mutual love for the fractaled vegetable known as Romanesco. Yes. And Romanesco is hard to get. It is. It is. Well, and it's hard to get only, I think, in the sense that we are now so totally and utterly spoiled by the all-season ubiquity of fresh produce from anywhere and everywhere all over the world, right? So you know, when I was a kid, Caleb, the avocado, you know, you, 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 when avocados were in season, okay, you got them. When they weren't, you, they weren't. Same with, you know, oranges and strawberries and all this type of stuff. And that's, of course, long, long in the past. Uh, but Romanesco, which is mainly, I think, only grown in California and only a couple times a year, is still one of those things that, that you only get a little bit, even in this wonderfully globalized economy we live in. Because it's it's so I think difficult to grow, but you know in general, yeah, we're just we're totally spoiled. You know why can't I have Romanesco delivered to my house in two hours in the middle of January? Right. Well, you know that's that's how it used to be for like literally all produce. So for a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, the prices go up, and then there's a season where there's a glut of the stuff. Yeah, where it's everywhere. Yeah. And so we live, I think it's been said many times, we live better than kings. Oh, yeah. With regard to the uh, kings of old, uh, with regard to our ability to access foods from all over the planet. Yeah. Explain how that, you know, give, give us the broad strokes of how that actually functions. Sure. Well, it's good old free market capitalism and globalization. The fact is that over the last, uh, you know, 50 to 50 to 100 years, radical changes in shipping technology and storage technology and transportation technology, all that kind of great stuff. And the internet with kind of real-time tracking of this, along with governments uh, lowering trade barriers and entering into trade agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, or the World Trade Organization agreements. So that's lowered artificial barriers to trade while at the same time, again, all the technological stuff was making it easier. Um, And we've we've simply entered into a period of food abundance in terms of what's available at the grocery store. Um, One of my favorite examples and one that we mention in this essay for our globalization project is the the pineapple, right? So back in the olden days, so we'll say in the time of Louis the Fourteenth in France, and in in Europe in the you know seventeen eighteen hundreds, pineapples were a sign of aristocracy. They cost like eight thousand dollars a pineapple uh, in today's dollars. They were you could rent a pineapple. Just for like the afternoon to like show your friends how how fancy you were, kings erected giant greenhouses to grow a single pineapple in the temperate European climates. 
Now, today, thanks to, again, a bunch of trade agreements and all this technology, uh, you go to your local grocery store and you have, you know, 99 cent pineapples, um, which is just an insane level of abundance. Even, even like 50 years ago, right? Uh, we were all eating canned pineapple. Now it's all just straight fresh and we don't even think twice about it. And, you know, part of the reason that I think food, particularly produce, is such a crisp example for uh, globalization is that, you know, we have hemispheres of the earth where the growing seasons are different. Yeah. And if we want relatively inexpensive access to a wide variety of foods, we kind of have to get it from there. Yeah. It's one of produce, especially it's where comparative advantage is it's most obvious, right? I think you know, comparative advantage, we actually have an essay on comparative advantage for the project, but it's one of those concepts that's very difficult. It's counterintuitive. It's very hard um, because you think, well, if I can do it better, I should just do it. You don't actually think about, well, actually, it's how you produce relative to somebody else. And maybe you could do something even more productive and then, you know, trade to get that other thing, the pineapple or whatever. But we actually, with produce, you kind of get it because of the growing season. I mean, I think, you know, when you say, hey, we could actually grow pineapples in upstate New York. We just could erect giant greenhouses and pump in tons of climate control and have people, you know, workers spending their time growing pineapples in upstate New York. People think, well, that's quite a waste. Why don't we just trade with Thailand or wherever it used to be, Hawaii? Why don't we just do that? And then we can all focus on other things, right? So we get it intuitively because of the weather stuff. Now, the minute you take weather out of the people's brains shut off and they think, oh, well, actually, we should be making all of our t-shirts in New York or whatever, because they, they don't think about it's the same type of comparative advantages. So produce is, is a really easy, good example for that reason. But it's also, I mean, let's face it, food is good. We like eating. We, we experience this every day. And that's the other thing that's really great about using food as an example of the bounty of globalization is because you know, you, you just go to the store and you see it and it's, it's pretty obvious that that avocado or whatever didn't come from down the street, right? It came from a long way away you're, and you get to enjoy that as well. And so that's, that's I think, another part of the, the globalization story and why it's so fun to talk about these things, right? Because I think people, they get it a little more than they get, again, with like a t-shirt. A popular internet meme is the small cup of fruit mm -hmm. that was grown in one place, packed in another place, and photographed in a grocery store uh, far away from either of those two other places. And this is presented as, well, capitalism has clearly failed. Yeah. Broken. It's broken. Yeah, this so this this meme or whatever it is pops up like, you know, it's like once a year we have to debunk this. But the leaving aside the the price and climate issues, what what the localists don't seem to grasp here is the just incredible efficiencies that exist today with respect to global trade and corporatized production of food. People have crunched the numbers on that little cup of pineapples. And again, leaving kind of the, the low price aside, I mean, the or sorry, pears, the ability to get, you know, cheap pears in your kid's lunchbox like this is, is a little miracle, but let's leave that aside. 
fact is that thanks to containerized shipping, thanks to industrial farming, those terrible things, it's actually more environmentally conscious, fewer emissions, less pollution, less energy, all that kind of stuff to grow the pears in South America and then ship them over to Thailand to be packaged and then ship them back in the United States. It actually uses less uh, resources and generates less um, pollution than if you tried to grow those pears down the street and then truck them over to the, the local grocery store. So we, we don't think of any of this again, because it's, you know, like a lot of trade stuff, it kind of boggles the mind that not making your own stuff or growing of something a few miles away could actually be worse for us, but it, but it is. And that, and that again, it leaves, it leaves aside all the cost savings we, you know, we, we have um, the ability to have cheap and healthy food at our doorstep. And that is, you know, partially a function of just the relative opaqueness of the decision making being made across oceans for seeking out those efficiencies to try to goose profit just a little more by being just a little more efficient. Whereas when we walk through the produce section, we immediately see fresh food yeah. that came from very far away. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, people, I think, derive this false, in a lot of sense, security about localized production, right? Oh, if it's just right down the street, it's, that means it's, uh, you know, if there's ever a shock of some type, it means it's always there. And, and they have, a, I should add, they have a security in kind of that this is a planned system. So we have people planning all this stuff. It's great. Uh, and the reality, though, is that, you know, in a lot of cases, having a globalized food supply, having a lot of alternatives for where you can get this stuff, and having not one person, uh, you know, at the helm trying to pull the, the food levers um, actually makes us far more secure. You know, in the last few years, we've, we've been treated to dozens of headlines thanks to the pandemic or the Russian invasion of Ukraine or um, the, you know, other uh, calamities. We've been treated to this idea that, oh, there's going to be a food crisis, food crisis any minute. And the food crisis have never materialized. Now, of course, prices have fluctuated and there have been a, you know, discrete shortages here and there. But why haven't we had these widespread food shortages? Well, it's because of good old globalization. Uh, you know, when prices go up, people think, aha, there's an opportunity for me to enter into that market. And they're attracted to those, you know, that profit seeking incentive. At the same time, the existing infrastructure, it's already there because the food supply is so globalized. So you already have the shipping containers. You already have the warehouses and the, the refrigerated storage facilities. And so all of that just shifts. And, and of course, you have thousands and tens of thousands of people whose job it is just to get you know, the ship from A to B or move it from B to C or whatever. All of that creates a far more resilient system than just having the, the guy down the street making all your food because, you know, of course, one, one bad weather problem, one, you know, the guy gets sick or injured. The next thing you know, you have no alternative. So it is a, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. There are these fights that break out occasionally, whether it's Rick Bayless, the <laughs> noted chef who is by all accounts an absolute expert in cuisines from Mexico. 
or others or people mixing tacos and Korean food or any number of other combinations that we make. It's called cultural appropriation. Uh, yeah. And I am excited by food. I'm excited to to eat the food from all over everywhere and for everybody to put their best foot forward. And it's not I don't I don't understand why it's a controversy. Yeah. It's a very odd thing, this obsession with cultural appropriation when it comes to food, because I mean you go back centuries upon centuries and you see that food is a story of uh, cultural appropriation or you know this mixing of ideas and flavors and things that today we think of as oh well that's the traditional cuisine were actually some sort of amalgam of different cuisines that mixed together due to some sort of historical thing or trade thing i mean one of my favorite examples i i learned this in writing the essay is the hot pepper in thailand like so thai food very spicy right well, how did Thailand get hot peppers? They were not indigenous to Thailand. It turns out they were part of kind of Portuguese trade in the 15th century uh, in kind of this early stage globalization, right? And that that was then incorporated into the diet at the time. But then that cuisine, of course, changed with, you know, colonization and, and other things. And so you have just this, this thing that we think, oh, that's just Thai food uh, was you know, far, far different centuries ago. And, and that's, that's the case with like everything, right? It's, it's not the only example. There's a million of these examples. And at the same time, chefs are always looking for new tastes and to borrow tastes and to mix them. You know, fusion cuisine is the most obvious, but that's not the only one. Um, you know, I, I, your traditional American bar and grill, I mean, you look down the list of the things on that menu. Even the French fries, right, are have been appropriated from some other place. And so that's that's another part of this wonderful globalization that we don't think about at all. You know, as I wrote in the intro, basically, you know, there could be probably no better example of real globalization than the restaurant down the street. Um, you know, again, the menu is probably some sort of mix of tons of different cultures and cuisines. Uh, we already talked about the ingredients are probably coming from all over the world, thanks to good old, uh, you know, global food trade. But then also, you know, the, the, the flatware and the glasses and the alcoholic beverages and the people working there are probably some immigrants there too. I mean, you can go down the list, right? Almost everything about that place, even though it's your local watering hole, is globalized. And yet, when we talk about globalization, the mainstream press in particular, it is thought of as this thing that was kind of like created in a lab, right? By Milton Friedman and Larry Summers and a few others. They were sitting around in Davos in the early 1990s and they created globalization and there it is. And it's, of course, destroyed the working class and all that. And yet, you know, here we are. Uh, lamenting globalization as we're you know eating our our ramen and our pizza and all this kind of stuff with no regard for the fact that all of our daily lives and particularly our diets are a product of that very globalization. Scott Linscombe is vice president for general economics at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily podcast anywhere you please, and thank you for listening.